according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in Proverbs 21. We're getting down to the bottom of the chapter here, Proverbs 21. And um, looking at mouth control issues in verse 23, he who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from troubles. And the damage, the soul damage that we can do with our mouth is uh, extraordinary. In fact, it can be lifelong. We can say things that a moment later uh, have such an impact uh, in, uh, to ourselves and to others in uh, the power of speech. So I want to pick up with this where we left off last week and then uh, trust in the Lord and His faithfulness. Remember, next week we actually have a special blessing. Next week will be a missionary report. We've never done a missionary report at this hour, at the 10 o'clock hour, uh, but, you know, times are changing. And it was really the only time we could book with uh, with Jim and Phyllis Myers while they're in Texas. So uh, we'll have Jim and Phyllis Myers here to do a missionary report, to teach a class, or a combination of the two, and uh, do that in the morning. Then in the evening, we're going to have another missionary report. We get a twofer in the same day. We get uh, Mark and uh, Renee Perkins will be here in the evening. So make for a long day, but a, a day of double portion blessings, and we're looking forward to that as well. All right. Well, before we do get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time together. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for your faithfulness, thankful for grace and truth, rejoicing in the privilege that we have to assemble together. Thankful for those that are here with us in person, physically local. Thankful also for those of us that are here um, virtually. Uh, I guess we are starting to call that electronically local. And uh, Father, we're, we're praying. We're praying for wisdom because our definition of local is changing with uh, the technology and the circumstances and uh, where we are. So give us wisdom in, uh, in opportunities as we have, as you have presented them before us. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so Proverbs uh, 21, and we were talking about last week, talking about verse 22, where a wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the stronghold in which they trust. And uh, this is happening, I guess it's always been the case, uh, from going back to forever, uh, that uh, believers with divine viewpoint can step up and they can engage with the unbelievers or even with carnal believers and their human viewpoint and uh, the perspectives that they have there. So uh, if I advance my slideshow here, really when we're looking at Proverbs twenty-one twenty-two. We are looking at the Old Testament predecessor to 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5, whereby uh, we understand that the weapons of our warfare are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses and uh, principles that we looked at last week. I'm not going to repeat a lot of what we did last week, but just to get us back up to speed and on a, on a mindset here for dealing with these verses. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. 
And really, when we're looking at Proverbs 21, 22, this is what we're talking about, bringing down the stronghold in which they trust. What is the object of the unbeliever's trust? What is the object of a carnal believer's trust? Anytime that, uh, that we go carnal, we're functioning basically like an unbeliever because we don't have our eyes fixed on, on the Lord. We don't have, we're not occupied with the Word of God. So uh, I think those issues are important to, uh, to identify with as well. Scaling the city of the mighty. And, uh, and that's, that's curious too because that means we don't just leave it alone. We don't just let it sit there. Uh, if we've got uh, friends or loved ones or somebody that we're ministering to and they happen to be uh, keeping themselves fixed in that kind of a stronghold, you know, I've got atheist friends and boy are they in strongholds, okay? And they've, uh, they enjoy the strongholds that they occupy. And uh, so what am I called to do? Am I called to just let them be and walk on by? Uh, or should I be the wise man that scales that city and brings down that stronghold if, uh, if in fact there's uh, the opportunity to do so? Anyway, the blessing is a divine viewpoint for believers grounded in the Word of God. And uh, praise God for that because it arms us. It arms us. It equips us and it arms us for engagement here in the angelic conflict and uh, the elements there. All right, so moving past verse 22 and getting to verse 23, forget gun control. What we need is mouth control, okay? Because the mouth gets us in trouble more often than not. And this is why uh, the best thing about being saturated with the Word of God is if it fills our thinking and if the love of Christ uh, constrains us, then those blessings can then have an impact in our, in our mouth but that really is the mark of a mature believer, according to uh, the book of James. And we have so many other passages that address these principles here as well. Here we go. Proverbs 21, 23. I was talking to my son last night. We had a bit of a technology meeting and we were discussing different uh, opportunities that we have with Faith Life and other software applications. And really, what we're doing now with the PowerPoint slideshow, with the Logos floating window that kind of sits on top of it, and uh, streaming as we're doing, going out through YouTube and whatnot, uh, as awkward as it is, um, really our best opportunity is to get better at it <laughs> and uh, to continue doing as we're doing. This seems to be the, uh, the best option at the moment. So anyway, praying over that. Proverbs 21, 23, he who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from troubles. And boy, is this, this is true. Not only, you know, if, you, if you're careful in what you say, then you don't get punched in the nose. That's, that's an earthly approach. You know, you don't want to say the wrong thing in the wrong context or the wrong person might be on hand to just, uh, you know, bop you. But this is a spiritual principle that what we say can have soul damaging impact. And this is true. We can damage our own soul. And because if we're harboring mental attitude sin and we express that mental attitude sin verbally, we're just reinforcing it. And the more we, we say it, the more we reinforce it. And then before we know it, just saying things isn't enough. Now we've got to take action and sins of the tongue are leading to overt sins. And we're just in this cycle of, of darkness as we're dwelling in these mental attitude sins. So uh, clearly we, uh, we need the Word of God to reshape our thinking so that that reshaped thinking is expressed in reshaped speaking and uh, reshaped activity. So uh, if you're guarding your mouth and your tongue, you're guarding your soul from multiplied troubles. More than one, multiplied troubles. And what goes well with this is Proverbs 10, 19. 
Where there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. And so part of the uh, retraining of our thinking is the retraining of our speaking involves uh, maybe a diminished uh, volume, okay? I'm not talking about sound volume, I'm talking about quantity. Fewer words, all right? Because um, when you just start rambling and you just start adding and start, you know, it's like you're digging a hole and it's getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And the first roll of holes is when you find yourself in a hole, quit digging, all right? And if you find yourself in a verbal hole because you said something awful, well, then just stop, okay? Don't try to make it better. The more you keep yapping, the worse you're making it. And so uh, anyway, I do like this. When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. So again, the principle there makes it clear. How about Proverbs 13.3? The one who guards his mouth preserves his life. The one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. So again, there's a principle that's being expressed here that shows the harm, that self-harm that we can bring. This is self-destructive activity. And uh, you want to save your soul? So we've got principles related to saving or preserving, uh, just like we talk about when we study sozo and the different applications of sozo and soteria to save. But here's the saving of your nefesh, the saving of your soul. Yep, saving of your nefesh. I should start highlighting some of these things as uh, as uh, the questions have come up. If if Logos has the capability to to uh, break down the um, inflections, Ed was asking me about that. We'll start doing some of those show and tell things. I'm going to introduce Faith Life at the business meeting, and then uh, probably use two or three Wednesday nights uh, for the rest of March or maybe April at, or uh, February and March. And uh, just give some tutorials and, and give some people some, some uh, impetus to, to get more familiar with the Faith Life app, also the Logos Bible software that comes with it. So stay tuned for that. Um, Proverbs seventeen twenty seven and 28. He who restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is considered prudent. So uh, that's kind of a bit of a tongue-in-cheek benefit there, but uh, just stay quiet and people will think you know a lot, okay? Uh, Because you're not spouting off some kind of ignorance. As soon as you open your mouth, then everybody's going to be pretty clear on how ignorant you truly are. So um, anyway, there's there's other ways to to express that as well. My, My father was very fond of that expression. 1821, death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruit. And, uh, you know, we taught this back in the chapter 18 material. I keep dwelling on it. I keep thinking about it. My mind goes back to this principle. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Think about what a privilege we have to speak and the privilege we have to communicate the words of life that, that, that are found in the Word of God and the joy that we have in, uh, in this application. Psalm 34, verses 12 and 13. Psalm 34, 12. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking guile or deceit. I think guile is the King James on that. That's a verse that goes back many, many years in my childhood to some early uh, daily vacation Bible schools and some scripture memory that we did in uh, different applications there. Wow. (laughs) 
Thank God. Carla Cross will be pleased. I could still remember that. James 3. And I think this is where we ran out of time. I didn't have a chance to walk all the way through James 3. So let's deal with it again. James 3. Uh, James is the New Testament version of Proverbs, right? James is the wisdom literature of the New Testament. And it is very practical and it reaches us on a, on a practical basis, on a daily basis where we are. And so uh, in James 3, 2, we read, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. So the fact that we're sinners saved by grace doesn't change the fact that we're still sinners, right? We still have weaknesses, we still have blind spots, we still have hang-ups, and uh, as, uh, as fallible creatures as we are, yes, we're redeemed, we're happy to be saved, but we stumble, and we all do it. And uh, someone who says he doesn't is a liar and makes God a liar. So we've got to realize that we have rebound. We have 1 John 1, 9. We've got procedures in place where we can be restored to fellowship. We all stumble in many ways. But it's the verbal aspect that's being stressed here. If anyone does not stumble in what he says. if uh, so, so we work on the different areas of life and we work on our mental attitude sins and we work on our verbal sins. We work on our overt sins. We work on our sins of omission. We're, we're, we're all growing. We're headed to glory. And as we're working on these things, if you find somebody that really has a handle on his, on his tongue, okay, on his mouth, man, get next to that person. Learn from them. Fellowship with them. And uh, see, if, uh, see if you can develop something similar. Because <laughs> okay? controlling the mouth um, James calls this person the perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. That is the, it's the toughest element of the, of the overt sins or the sins of the body. Now if we put bits, and so the, now we go through the, the illustrations and the metaphors. If we put bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Think about that, a great big horse and a tiny little bit that sits in his mouth. And uh, think about the, the application there. Look at the ships also, though they are so great, driven by strong winds, they're still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So you turn the wheel, the rudder turns, and you're, you're turning the entire ship's direction. So both those metaphors, the horse's bridle and the ship's rudder, are uh, illustrative of the tongue, and how the tongue is just that tiny little part of the body, and yet it does so much damage if you let it get out of control. It can start a whole forest fire. So the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity, the tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body, sets on fire the course of our life, and is set on fire by hell. Anyway, so pretty dire warnings on that. Every species of beast and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. You know, think of even the toughest, uh, you know, you can hunt hippos, you can hunt some of the toughest animals that are out there. But the tongue, who can tame the tongue? It is a rebellious evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, with it we curse men and we have been made, who have been made in the likeness of God. So, you know, if you're in fellowship or out of fellowship, um, you can either do great marvelous things with the tongue or you can do tremendous harm. Blessing and cursing, flip sides of the same coin. Blessings and cursings, all right. So that's where we ran out of time and that's what we're dealing with here today. Let's get past verse 23 and let's look at verse 24. Talking about insolent pride. 
And uh, I want to spend some time with this because I think this uh, so much in Proverbs is, yes, it's practical. Yes, it's uh, useful on a daily basis. But if you think it's, it's uh, surface level, if you think it's just baby doctrine or real uh, light fluff, think again. Solomon in the Proverbs takes us to some of the deepest realms of the angelic conflict, some of the deepest realms of things in which, you know, clearly Proverbs 8 and the, uh, the uh, hypostatic union of Jesus Christ and so many other passages have uh, taken us to really the depths of doctrine. So let's look at Proverbs 21, 24 and there we go. Look at these names. The triply named haughty one. The triply named haughty one. All right, Proverbs 21, 24. Proud, haughty, scoffer are his names who acts with insolent pride. Who acts with insolent pride. And we've got a, a trinity here, clearly, with these three expressions for proud, haughty, and scoffer. And they're, they're interesting. They're different from two other terms. And the fact that this chapter gives us five separate expressions for arrogance is, uh, is uh, you know, grabs your attention. But here's a threefold name. And this, this grabs my attention because where else do we have a threefold name anywhere in the Bible? Where else do we have, uh, clearly when we have uh, to, uh, in the Great Commission, uh, teaching, them, make disciples of all nations, teaching them and baptizing them in what? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, right? We have a threefold name when it comes to our Creator God and, uh, and that. Well, here is the adversary. Here is um, the one who believes that he can be like the Most High God. He even vowed that he would be like the Most High God in his five I wills. And what does he do? Now he's got this threefold name here, proud, haughty, scoffer. And yet, not just him, but everyone that he's influenced. Remember, his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven. And so the fallen angels in the angelic conflict, they are all about arrogance and self-magnification. And, and Jesus is all about humbling himself and coming to serve, not to be served. And uh, obviously then we, we choose. Are we going to be, uh, are we going to have the servant heart? Or are we going to demand an arrogance that, that others serve us? What is, uh, what is, uh, God expect of us here in the church age. So the triply named haughty one has a damaged soul and God is his adversary. And uh, we have this, and it's described right here. Um, acting with insolent pride, the damage that he does to his soul. So there's a, there's a depth to this. So if we want, we can just read the verse, proud, haughty, scoffers, names who acts with insolent pride, and we can say, okay, get that. Don't be arrogant, be humble, move on. Oh, but wait, slow down. There is so much, I think, that we can unfold with this, and we need to unfold with this. <clears throat> I think it becomes a, um, a fundamental core issue from Genesis to Revelation, from the, the, the whole breadth of Scripture, what this conflict is all about. And as we're learning in Genesis, we've got Adam and Eve and their creation. What's the first thing they encounter? They encounter this guy, the, the, the proud, um, haughty scoffer. And he comes to them and he says, did God say? Right? As if, um, as if uh, God himself is a liar and there's reason to doubt what God says and we shouldn't trust what God says. And we should start learning, we should start digging deeper and ask, well, what are the strings attached? Or what is he not telling us? Or what is it that, uh, that we're being kept from? 
and all these things. And that's satanic thinking all the way around. And we need to be aware of that. <clears throat> the very act of questioning, did God say, is just a poison. And, and she bit, Eve bit, you know, hook, line, and sinker. And uh, just questioning that, uh, that either what he said wasn't true or was incomplete or he left something out or he's got wrong motives, that he, um, he's hostile to us, which is why he said what he said. When you start impugning the, the motives behind why he said what he said, why are you even going there? Because you're reflecting Satan's thinking. I want to kind of spin off of Proverbs 21 here for the moment, and let's look at Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 2, you say, Habakkuk, who wants to look at Habakkuk? Let me tell you, Habakkuk is a minor prophet, yes, but look at, look at how many times he's quoted in the New Testament. Look at this principle. The minor prophet Habakkuk actually pegged the real issue here in the angelic conflict, which is humility versus pride. Behold, as for the proud one. Now we're going to read this verse and we're going to understand that it, it's identifying the adversary. It's going to identify Satan personally. But it's going to go beyond Satan to talk about any of us. Any of us that are walking after Satan's pattern, you can label us as the proud one. Anybody that's not walking in humility. So if you you understand that we've got Jesus Christ who is the archetypical humble one and we can imitate him and walk in humility and then we can call ourselves humble ones that are following the example of Christ. Or we have Satan as the proud one and the archetype, you know, the archetypical proud one. And again, he, he represents everyone that follows in his wake, everyone that follows in his example. So when we see, behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, that applies to Satan, first of all, but then it applies to any unbeliever and, unbel- and believer alike that's walking in the, in the cycles of pride. You're doing soul damage in the process. His soul is not right within him. It's actually, I forget if it's uh, nephesh there, if it's lave for the heart. It's nephesh, all right. His nephesh is not right within him. There's the internal damage that's being done to his nephesh. But the righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. Now this gets quoted how many times? And it gets quoted in an in a, in a evangelistic kind of way, in a gospel context. The only way to, uh, to receive righteousness is by faith. The only way to have eternal life is by faith. So if I'm an unbeliever and I need righteousness or I need life, how am I going to get it? By faith. I'm going to trust in Christ and receive eternal life. So clearly you can take this principle and use it in a a phase one concept of of sozo for salvation. This is how we get saved. And this is how, you know, this, this verse gets quoted in Romans and wherever. But now look at it again and say, is it limited to a salvation context? Because really the, the, the verse as it's being expressed here is expressing uh, an individual in his ongoing experience, his ongoing way of living. As for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. He he's, has an ongoing lifestyle, an ongoing, or you call it a death style if you want, an ongoing way of, of functioning. And uh, we, we need to have the same thing. We need to have the, the ongoing way of functioning that's the walk of faith. So if the righteous live by faith then that's more than just getting saved. That's how we live after we're saved. Make sense? 
So not only are we saved by faith, but we walk by faith, not by sight, okay? And so walking by faith, that's the walk of, of righteousness. That's the walk of, uh, that's the real life that uh, that's, has a well-adjusted soul, a well-adjusted nefesh, as long as we're walking by faith. Furthermore, oh wait, there's more. <laughs> Wine betrays the haughty man so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol. He is like death, never satisfied. He also gathers to himself all nations and collects to himself all peoples. I think we've got this tandem here. Verse 4 doesn't sit by itself, but we have verse 4 and verse 5 together. And uh, there's a lot more that we need to expand upon this. The, uh, the damage that you do to your soul and the betrayal that you do to your soul and you start introducing influences like wine or alcohol or drugs or demonism and the the other influences that you bring in. See, if your soul is not right within you, you start looking for ways to stimulate your soul. And instead of the Word of God stimulating your soul, instead of love with Jesus Christ stimulating your soul, what are you doing? And so you have the soul that's not right and now you're stimulating it. Now you're roaming, does not stay at home. Whereas believers that are walking by faith, live in the Word of God, content in the fellowship that we have with the Father and with the Son. We have our ambition to uh, live the, the tranquil and quiet life, to work with our hands, to serve one another. The carnal man, oh no, none of that. The carnal man's uh, looking for the next thrill, looking for the next adventure, out there trying to find something that satisfies. And uh, no matter how much he consumes, he's never satisfied. Never. So all the drunkenness, all the, all the drugs, all the sex, all the entertainment, all the fun and games, all of the just chasing after everything. Colonel Theme called it the, the frantic inveterate search for happiness because it never stops. Never satisfied. Also gathering to himself all nations. Well, maybe, maybe politics will help. <laughs> no. Collects to himself all peoples. Much of this, I think, centers more on Satan personally and his role in the angelic conflict, but there's individual applications as well related to uh, unbelievers and uh, the carnal believer. How about Job chapter 40? Job chapter 40. forgetting. Somebody remind me. When class is over, don't let me leave the pulpit until I adjust this, uh, this wheel because I keep forgetting to do it. All right, Job chapter 40. The Lord said to Job, will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? This is how the chapter begins. And this is really harsh language, but it wakes Job up and it gets him to the point that he realizes he, he needs to confess. He's got to repent. Because God's calling him a fault finder. Let him who reproves God answer it. He spent 40 cha- or 39 chapters blaming God and chewing God out for everything God's doing wrong. And now uh, the Lord's answering him out of the whirlwind and calling him names. So Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I'm insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, I will not answer. Even twice I will add nothing more. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you and you instruct me. Again, this is harsh. 
but it's the loving discipline of a father that's um, bringing his uh, bringing his son back into uh, divine viewpoint. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Does that make you feel better? <laughs> if you want to justify yourself, and yet in the process of justifying yourself, you have to condemn me, is what God is saying here. What have you really done? Do you have an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like His? You know, you're putting yourself in God's place, and uh, it seems to me like you're not God. You don't have that intrinsic ability. You don't have God's arm. You don't have God's thundering voice. Adorn yourself with eminence and dignity. Clothe yourself with honor and majesty. Now, if you have to make yourself like God, then you didn't, you're not God. Because God's eternally the I am. God's eternally majestic. God's eternally glorious. Uh, if you're going to try to make yourself that, then you're no different than Satan who said, I will, be, I will make myself like the Most High God. I will be like the Most High God. So if you have to adorn yourself and clothe yourself with this, it's just a disguise. And you're no different than the one that disguises himself as an angel of light. But God says, go ahead. <laughs> Since you think you can do it, I'm watching. I'll watch your arm, I'll watch your voice, I'll watch your clothing, I'll watch what you're doing here. Pour out the overflowing of your anger. Look on everyone who is proud and make him low. This is one of God's primary activities. He is the I am and everyone that's proud, everyone that gets puffed up, everyone who starts to approach the, the insanity of saying that he's comparable to the one, that there's nothing like him, there's no one like him. Then the integrity of God's character is such that he brings that pride down. So this is what he's inviting Job to do. Look on everyone who is proud and make him low. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them in the dust together. Bind them in the hidden place. Since you think you're God, do all this. So anyway, these are interesting verses because they not only do they rebuke Job, clearly, they rebuke Satan, the one that afflicted Job and started this whole book off in chapter 1, but they're, they're actually a, a marvelous testimony to the nature of God Himself and the nature of His own jealousy. He will not share His glory with another. That, that He views this pride and He brings it down. But He also looks at humility and lifts it up. This speaks to the very nature of what God is and who God is, the kind of God that God is in the, the perfection of His majesty. So hide them in the dust together, bind them in the hidden place. And uh, this is where, this is the destiny of all the wicked. They're going to be sealed in the lake of fire forever. And when, when uh, the, the, at the great white throne judgment, when the last occupant is cast in, then it's sealed away, never to be reopened again, never to be viewed again. It still exists, but it exists apart from God's view. It exists apart from our view or in any of the, of the righteous and redeemed. We will never be looking upon the, the condemned ever again. They'll be isolated bound in the hidden place. So if you can do all that, Job, <laughs> then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. You understand, in order to save yourself, you've got to be God. Only God can save. 
And uh, here's Job trying to justify himself, trying to save himself, if you will. So do all that, and God will, will then have to be forced to admit that he's not unique, that he's not alone, that there's another being in the universe comparable to him. And if Job can do all that, then God's willing to say, okay, okay, clearly. Do you, do you get the, the irony in this, the sarcasm? The, the, he's speaking as a counterfactual. He's speaking a whole realm of things that if they were true, then he would, he would readily confess. All right, you're right. But he's listened now to 39 chapters of, uh, of, or less than that, but he's listened to all of Job's diatribes, and now he's, he's just, this is his closing argument. And what can Job say? Can't say anything. Then he gives two illustrations, the illustration of behemoth and the illustration of Leviathan. And uh, I think the, the behemoth is the, is the dinosaur, effectively. It's the largest, the, the monster beasts, the megafauna of the, of the ancient world. And, uh, and then, because it's a, it's a plural of majesty, the oath ending, the, the, the behema is the, is the beast, the behemoth is the, uh, the majestic ending there. But anyway, the greatest of the beasts and uh, the description there. Then you get down to... Um, the Leviathan, the dragon. Let's see. I don't want to get lost in this, but there's Behemoth in verse 15. Eating grass, his different limbs, his tail, his bones. The first of the ways of God, let his maker bring near his sword. Of course, we know somebody who was birthed before the ways of God, right? the alpha moment begotten one. We get down to chapter 41, same chapter in the Hebrew, by the way. It's an unfortunate chapter break. Yep, it's still chapter 40 and verse 25 in the Hebrew. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? So now we're switching from the, the greatest animal realm in the, in the giant uh, dinosaurs of, of uh, the, that world, but then now we're looking at the dragon himself. We're looking at Leviathan, the class of beings like the dragon. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? And you know, what kind of what kind of tack, bait and tackle do you need if you're if you're fishing for dragons? It's not easy, right? And and since Job is claiming to be like the most high God, this should be easy for him. Anyway, I like this chapter. Can you tell? When I, every time I read this chapter, I get excited about it. This is like uh, when Tolkien wrote the the uh, the Hobbit, when he, and when he wrote that scene with Smog, and Smog was just gloating over his ma- power and might and majesty, and he's taunting Bilbo over how awesome he is, and and then of course he rolls over and he's got the little empty spot on his chest there that Bilbo spots and says, "Aha, that's where we're going to shoot the arrow." <laughs> okay. But that scene, that gloating scene, you know what I'm talking about? That gloating scene where Smog is gloating at how glorious he is as, as the greatest of the, the dragons there in the third age. I know Tolkien had to have taken that from this chapter in Job, from Job 41. He was so influenced by, of course he was Catholic, but he was influenced by the, the Bible reading and mythology in different areas. But this is, uh, this is the boasting of a mighty dragon, Leviathan, and, and uh, he doesn't have the, the empty patch in his armor. 
the way that uh, that Smog did in The Hobbit. All right. So can you put a rope in his nose, pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many supplications to you? Will he speak to you soft words? So just like the serpent, uh, it appears that uh, Leviathan was a speaker, capacity for uh, language. Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him for a servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you bind him for your maidens? Will the traders bargain over him? Will they divide him among the merchants? And there's so much here that we, we wonder about. How much of this was, was uh, in the context of Ezekiel 28? How much of this was involved with the emporium trading that, that Satan did when he defiled his temples, when he, he defiled his sanctuaries by the abundance of his trade? Was he involved in Leviathan trading in the, on the angelic earth? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hand on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. <laughs> okay. Remember this day. It will be your last. This, uh, you're not going to fight another one of these. Behold, your expectation is false. You will, be, will you be laid low even at the sight of him? No one is so fierce that he dares to arouse him. Who then is he that can stand before me? And this is just the a fortiori principle. This is the logic that if you can't stand face to face with it with Leviathan, why do you think you can you can defy the living God? Okay. Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or the his mighty strength or his orderly frame. Who can strip off his outer armor? Who can come within his double mail? So let's say you do happen to pry off a, 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 a breast piece or some kind of armor scale. Uh, you know what you find underneath that scale? You find a second scale. He's, he's double, double armored. Who can open the doors of his face around his teeth? There is terror. His strong scales are his pride. Shut up is with a tight seal. And I think the double scales are useful too because it's watertight and he's a sea creature. This dragon actually spends much of his time in the ocean. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezes flash forth light. His eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. You know, and, and of course the liberals, they don't like this chapter at all and they try to find a natural explanation and they, they deny that it says what it says. They, they're so... Um, flawed. They've got the assumption that anything miraculous, anything supernatural, anything that appears mythological can't be real, so it's got to be mythology or whatnot. They say this is just a metaphor for a crocodile, and, and the behemoth paragraph was just a hippopotamus, and failing to realize that there is so much a larger context here than just uh, humanity and, and animals. We're dealing with the angelic realm as well. Anyway, out of his mouth go burning torches, sparks of fire leap forth. I've yet to find a fire-breathing crocodile out there anywhere, but, you know, this is what we have, the fire-breathing dragon. Is this mythology? Well, or was the mythology invented based upon the reality of the Bible, based upon the reality of, of the dragons that used to, used to roam this earth? Out of his nostrils smoke goes forth from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals and a flame goes forth from his mouth. So we've got four or five verses there in a row 
that can't be a crocodile unless you're just so insane with your hermeneutic that the Bible doesn't mean what it says. Stick with me now. I've got a reason for taking you through all this. <laughs> okay? There's a purpose here beyond the fact that it's extra cool and I like these verses. The folds of his uh, flesh are joined together, firm on him and, immu- and immovable. His heart is as hard as a stone, even as hard as a lower millstone. So if you're looking for a vulnerable spot, you think stabbing them through the heart, assuming, of course, that you can get through the double mail to get to the heart. But uh, once you get something that deep and it hits the heart, look how hard the heart itself is. So good luck with that. When he raises himself up, the mighty fear because of the crashing, they are bewildered. The sword that reaches him cannot avail, nor the spear, the dart, the javelin. He regards iron as straw, bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. Sling stones are turned into stubble for him. Clubs are regarded as stubble. He laughs at the rattling of the javelin. His underparts, even, you know, yeah, the underparts, they're like sharp part, uh, potsherds. He spreads out like a threshing sledge on the mire, makes the depths boil like a pot, makes the sea like a jar of ointment. Behind him he makes a wake to shine. One would think the deep to be gray-haired. All right, here's the summary now. Nothing on earth is like him, one made without fear. He looks on everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. Now take that final summary and realize what's really being addressed here. The greatest of all creatures, and he was not content with his greatness. The most beautiful, the most wise. You see, before he was ferocious, the description we have in Ezekiel, he was glorious. He was beautiful. He was covered with gold and silver and precious stones. He had 12 different kinds of gems. He was, his covering made him look like he was a, a moving dragon Levitical ephod, right? Because those, those stones in Ezekiel 28, they match the, the, uh, the ephod of the, of the Levitical high priest. And so it's, a, it's an amazing thing. And of course, in his fall, God brought forth fire from the midst of him and consumed him and left him as the, as the terror of the Leviathan that this chapter describes. King over all the sons of pride. So, Job's going to answer the Lord and this is the, the conclusion. With, uh, so the, the book be- opens with Satan the accuser and it closes here with, with the, uh, the, the dragon rebuke, Leviathan rebuke and This is Job's repentance. It's a marvelous, marvelous book. All right. So we managed to do it. My screen said read verses 10 through 14 in chapter 40, and then read verses 33 and 34 in chapter 41. (laughs) And I should have just done that, but instead I read everything else in between, and we, we got a good glimpse here for those kind of things. All right. How about Daniel chapter 4? Nebuchadnezzar. And what happens in this chapter? Nebuchadnezzar has to spend seven years as an animal, seven years in the backyard eating the grass. He has the mind of a beast until he's humbled. And then when he's humbled, all right, I got time. 
when he's humbled, so yeah, he has a dream and then Daniel rebukes him. But then sure enough, 12 months later, as he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, the king reflected and said, is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power, for the glory of my majesty? He was warned. He was warned 12 months ago to humble himself. Don't be prideful. And yet what does he do? Gets up on the roof and starts boasting about you know, all the great things that he has done. And while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. He's got to be humbled. This was the judgment Daniel predicted and prophesied, and this is exactly what happens. And so um, you will be driven away from mankind. Your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You'll be given grass to eat like cattle. Seven periods of time, seven years will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High as ruler over the realm of mankind bestows it on whomever he wishes. God is sovereign. We have the president today that El Elyon wants us to have. We better humble ourselves or we'll end up in the backyard <laughs> eating grass like cattle. Anyway, to me, of all the miracles in, in the book of Daniel, when you want to talk about the fiery furnace, you want to talk about the lion's den, I don't care. For, for Nebuchadnezzar to get his kingdom back after seven years of, of insanity, that's a miracle. Because if you ever study Babylonian politics, they were quick to, to assassinate and kill one another and claim to be the king and all this other stuff. I think it's testimony to the humility of Daniel, who undoubtedly reigned as a regent. Undoubtedly, he kept the kingdom together. And Nebuchadnezzar got his throne back after seven years. That's, that's the greatest miracle of this book, I think. So at the end of that time period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me. My reason returned to me. Pay attention to this. Because for seven years he had the mind of a beast, but then he gets his reason back. We're talking about the mental faculties that distinguish between humanity and the realm of the animals. My reason returned to me and I blessed El Elyon, the Most High God, and I praised and honored Him who lives forever. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. God is eternal. If He gives the gift of everlasting life, then He gives that gift to temporal creatures that had beginnings that will then have no ends, that will live forever. But God is unique in the fact that He never had a beginning, that He always is, always was, always will be. The inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Remember Jesus Christ, the creator of all things, visible and invisible in the heavens or on the earth. Nebuchadnezzar understands the invisible realm, the host of heaven, the visible realm, the inhabitants of the earth. No one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. He had a greater greatness than he ever had before because he was humbled. 
Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and honor the King of heaven for all his works are true, his ways are just. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. Isn't that beautiful? The closing phrase of this chapter, he is able to humble those who walk in pride. This defines the entire angelic conflict, doesn't it? Why, why did he just, God just not blast Satan and, and throw him in the lake of fire on the, on the day that Satan rebelled? Why unfold the, the entire outworking of grace to demonstrate, to humble? Not just to defeat, but to humble. To humble those who walk in pride. Anyway, things to chew on. Finally, Matthew 23, 33. Yeah, this is the brood of vipers verse. I should have put that up earlier. It's not only the it's not only the serpent, it's not only the dragon, but he has a whole brood. He has a whole uh, you know planet full of offspring. Jesus called him the brood of vipers. You're of your father, the devil. You desire to do the things of your father. And this brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? No, I'll tell you how. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. It's as easy as that. But see, that takes humility. Humility to, to listen to the gospel, to respond, to stop trusting in self, the repentance that's necessary to turn from the, uh, from the darkness and to turn to light. Anyway, this whole aspect on the, the brood of vipers and the, the, uh, the elements there. So, Yeah, we could have just skipped on through all that. Proud, haughty scoffer are his names who acts with insolent pride. <laughs> I just think it's so much deeper than the surface reading that that uh, I think some would limit this to. Read the commentaries on Proverbs and, and just see how shallow sometimes this verse is, is remarked upon in uh, basically saying, uh, learn the word of God, develop God's wisdom, and you'll avoid the... Uh, the pride and the, and the names that come with it. Um, but there's so much more. Because, I mean, it truly is the essence of what the angelic conflict is all about with uh, the downfall of Satan there. Okay, well, then the last thing we want to look at then is verse 25, as we have time here. Uh, the desire of the sluggard puts him to death, for his hands refuse to work. All day long he is craving, while the righteous gives and does not hold back. We've got 10 minutes, and we'll see if we can cover 25 and 26 here. The desire of the sluggard, that he desires a desire. He has craving. All day long he is craving. So he has these wants, and he doesn't even know what he wants, but he has wants, and he wants a want. It's an intensive desire. It's like dying you will die, desiring you will desire. And it's uh, emphasizing it here, but um, it's not, uh, the, the pursuit of what he thinks he wants isn't going to give him what he thinks he wants, and in fact, it's the path of death. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. And, uh, and he's so busy um, being lazy that uh, he doesn't have time to work, but work is what God designed us to do, and work is what produces, and work is what has value, and work is what... Um, is what fosters the righteousness of generosity. So really, when we're looking at these two verses, we have this contrast going on between the worker and the, and the non-worker. 
the worker and the sluggard. And the sluggard is the refusal, the one that refuses. So point 21 then in the outline. The unrealized desires of the sluggard are contrasted with the generous heart of the righteous. The unrealized desires of the sluggard. You know, what does the sluggard want anyway? Well, he doesn't know. He just doesn't want to work. <laughs> okay? But he has these desires. And he'll never realize any of them. He's too lazy. The unrealized desires of the sluggard, they're contrasted with the generous heart of the righteous. He works, he accumulates. Remember a couple of weeks ago we were dealing with the accumulation of treasures. There is precious treasure in the house of the godly one. And uh, where was that? Anyway, we dealt with that uh, just a few verses ago. Yeah, verse 20. Precious treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but the foolish man swallows it up. And so very similar here. The, uh, the hard worker, he's generous. He's got an abundance. He's, he's laid up treasures and he's ready to share. But this sluggard, he wants what he doesn't have. He's not willing to work for it, but he just keeps wanting it. Someone ought to give it to him. It's a terrible way to live. Refusal to work is a defiance of the purpose for man as the imager of God. Refusal to work. And the verb for refusal is, is curious to me. And and um, it's, uh, I think it's testimony to how God has created us as volitional beings. Because when we say no, God honors that. If we refuse, God honors that. He doesn't coerce the volition. No, he applies the discipline. He might send a storm and send a, a whale and swallow us and vomit us on the beach and then tell us again, go to Nineveh. But it's still volitional. When he says, go to Nineveh, and Jonah cleans off the, the, uh, the whale vomit and, and, and goes to Nineveh, okay? It's a, it's a marvelous thing. And so when we refuse, when the sluggard refuses to work, God honors the volition, but the consequences are applied and the circumstances are not pleasant. And uh, living in this uh, defiance of the will of God. Anyway, it's, it's, it's curious vocabulary to me. In fact, it's kind of fun to look at the survey on that. Um, it's like, it's like um, amen with the Aleph, M-N, only you swap around the, the mame and the Aleph. So you have mame, Aleph, noon, ma'in, ma'an. And it's instead of saying amen, I believe it, or, or make it so, you're saying, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> You're saying, you're refusing, absolutely refusing. You're folding your arms and saying, no, I won't do it. I won't do it. I won't do it. And uh, in that kind of defiance, we face the consequences. All right. Um, let me just show you that, and then we'll cut you loose here for the day. Uh, refusal. Here's your lemma, ma'an, and the color wheel on the word study. All right, so you can see there the ma'an, M-A-N, or M apostrophe N, 
It's almost like amen, right? Just swap that, uh, that olive and that meme and you got amen. But no, this is ma'an and this is the refusal. 46 verses, and some of these are very well known to us. His sons and his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. There's Jacob there in his bitter um, bitter life. Verse 39, this is a positive refusal because Mrs. Potiphar wanted to sleep with Joseph and Joseph refused. So that's a positive refusal. Um, Genesis 48, his father refused. He's got his hands crossed and Joseph's trying to say, no, 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 no swap, swap it around. Uh, this one's the older boy and his father refused course, in Exodus, you got all kinds of refusal and it's Pharaoh refusing to repent, refusing to let Israel go. In chapter 4, chapter 7, Pharaoh's heart was stubborn. He refused to let the people go. Chapter 8, chapter 9, he refused to let them go. Chapter 10, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? But then in chapter 16, the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my instruction. Edom refused in Numbers chapter 20. Balaam refused because the Lord has refused to let Balaam curse Israel. A lot of these refusal passages, they're pretty well known to us. 1 Samuel 8, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. 1 Samuel 28, he refused and said, I will not eat. 2 Samuel 2, he refused to turn aside. Naboth uh, refused to sell his vineyard. Queen Vashti refused to dance when uh, Ahasuerus or Xerxes was commanding her to be the entertainment. Job refused in Job 6. Anyway, Job, uh, Psalm 77, my soul refused to be comforted. Proverbs 1, I uh, called and you refused. This is the divine judgment for refusing Bible doctrine. I called and you refused. I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention. All right, then Jeremiah's got a bunch of uses. All right, well, that's enough on that. We will pick up here in two weeks. Remember, next week is Missionary Report, so we'll pick up here in two weeks. We'll deal with uh, the refusal to work and the defiance there and the nature of work. Adam was a worker. That's, that's before the fall. It's not a consequence of the fall. Adam was a worker, and when you refuse to work, you're defying God's purpose. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank, thank you for this study. We do um, just give you praise and glory for the truth of your word. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.